You're listening to The Morning Muster, a podcast by Ben and Teresa Carey from More Alpha Expeditions. If you are being swept north by the Gulf Stream, your velocity made good in terms of how fast you're actually making it to the destination will drop. Because even if you're not angling into the stream, you're being swept sideways, so you're not making the speed towards your destination that you would be if there weren't the current there. That's Nika Waters. We'll hear more from her in just a bit, because today we're talking about the Bahamas. We're talking with two sailors who recently made the crossing and are currently cruising the Bahamas. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab a cup of hot chai, because we are about to muster. Today, we'll eavesdrop on a conversation Ben had with two sailors who are cruising in the Bahamas. Ben Carey is captain and co-owner of Morse Alpha Expeditions, a coastal and offshore sail training program. And our first guest is Nika Waters, who you may know from the Boat Galley podcast or her blog, Fit to Sail. And we also have Dave Martin, a former Morse Alpha Expedition student and a marine industry professional turned mostly full-time cruiser. Ben talked with them about their recent crossings to the Bahamas, which they did earlier this season. So if you're looking to spend the winter in the Bahamas, but you're nervous about the crossing, well, you're not alone. For a lot of people, crossing to the Bahamas is often their first overnight passage. So if that's what you're planning, then you'll love this episode because they compared notes, they talked about weather windows, destinations, and anchorages, and discussed the ins and outs of getting your boat to the Bahamas for a relaxing and exciting winter. So let's get to it. Okay, thank you both for being here. It has been a challenge to schedule this one, hasn't it? Um, a little bit. With both of you guys in the Bahamas currently. But um, all right, let's jump in. Why the Bahamas, you guys? Nika, why don't you go first? Uh, so we're sailing on our second boat. We own two of the same kind of boat. And this one, the one that we're on right now is a rescue. And we wanted to give her a test. She'd been sort of abandoned for 10 or 12 years. And we did a lot of work over the summer to get her ready to go sailing. And we wanted to test her out. And the Bahamas is a nice close spot. We also need to be back in the States in April for a college graduation. So we didn't have time to go a whole lot further afield. Gotcha. And why do you guys keep going back? We love it. It's, yeah. We love the ease of access. We love the ability to be with a lot of people if we want to be with people, but also be totally by ourselves if we want to. And the beautiful water does not hurt. And and Dave, you've this is your second time or, or have you been more? more? Uh, no, this is the second time down in the Bahamas. Um, yeah. We kept it close on our first season. It was kind of New to being together all the time on the boat, we had saved up money and neither of us were working. So it was like all the time together, all the time. And uh, trying to make sure that we liked cruising, we liked the boat. So keeping it close in, in the Abacos uh, at first was always the plan. We wanted to go a little bit further, but we just started having so much fun here. And uh, we met a lot of cruising friends along the way. And it just made cruising pretty easy. So when the decision came over the summer, what are we doing this year? We just said, let's go back. And so here we are back, back in the Abacos. Mm -hmm. I echo a lot of the same things that Nika said, though. You can be with a ton of people and be social if you want, or you can have an anchorage to yourself. Uh, and here in the Abacos, those things are two hours apart from each other. And usually all our decisions on that are based on where can we go that we're going to beam reach to today. And the sailing's just fantastic. Sea of yeah. Abaco is always calm. The bank's always calm, no matter what's going on. So we've just had nothing but great sailing. 
Oh, that's great. The Bahamas, I love the Bahamas. I also love Maine, and, and that's why we sail up here all the time. But uh, the two, there's two of my favorite places, I think, because like you guys are saying, the proximity of anchorages and the variety of things you can do, lots of nooks and crannies to explore in both of those places. Maine is, <laughs> is great for that as well. So let's talk about what to expect in the Bahamas as far as like the geography. What can people expect if they haven't been to the Bahamas as far as the geography goes? It's 60 miles from Florida, right? Roughly? Yeah, it's only, I think, 47 from like West Palm to Bimini or West End. And like you said, a lot of people will use it as like their first destination away from the US. It's an exciting place for, for people to visit because it's relatively close. You see a lot of people coming from West Palm Beach. You come out Lake Worth Inlet and you're somewhere in a, a day's time. Uh, we've never done that route for checking in. We always come up over the bank and do an overnight. Uh, but again, that's super easy. You're on the banks in eight, nine hours. So it's pretty predictable for what you're going to do. You can hit very narrow web weather windows because it can go north once you're on the banks. It doesn't matter. And, uh, uh, when, when you when you say the banks, what are you talking about? Can you describe what that is? So crossing the Gulf Stream, I mean, within an hour of being out of Lake Worth Inlet, the depth sounder doesn't work anymore on our boat anyways. Uh, you know, it's 2,000 feet deep, but you cross into the banks both times we've crossed in the banks it's at night and you can see it you can see the change in water color uh you go from a couple thousand feet to 36 feet uh, in an instant but uh little bahama bank is a pretty vast area of about that 20 to maybe 12 feet deep but we sail the bank at night which no issues um but it can be pretty tossed up in the gulf stream we have kind of very confused seas on the way over, but within a half hour of being on the banks, it's very sedate, very calm, organized, and comfortable. So that's kind of the first hurdle for some people. I mean, even if you do check in at West End, you got to cross the banks um, to come up here anyways. You're going to go up through uh, Great Sail Key. This is a pretty common halfway point for people. It's uninhabited, but it's just a place to drop the hook. You can be on the lee on either side of it. Uh, have a comfortable night's sleep, and then move on to some of the more well-known destinations like Green Turtle and Manjaki, Palki, all the kind of fun diving and hiking places you can go check out. Uh, one of the things that's pretty unique about the Bahamas when you're sailing there, and David mentioned the banks and the the really extended periods of shallow water that you're talking about, and shallow being anywhere from 20 to, to in some places it's five feet deep, but you can absolutely see the water color change with the depth of the water. So you'll hear people talk about reading the water when they get to the Bahamas. And that has a combination to do with the water depth, but also what the bottom is. So if you're looking at water that has sand underneath it, it's going to look really different than water that has turtle grass or rock. And you get very used to being able to look and see what you're looking at. Polarized glasses help a whole lot. But people do talk about, and it's really important in a lot of places in the Bahamas to only sail during the day because the charts aren't totally accurate. And you need to be able to see what you're going into. And so you want to be sailing with the sun high and behind you is the optimum. And sure, we've all gone into places a little bit late in the day with the sun in our faces. But those might be times when we've either done that before or we're fairly certain that that there's a deep, clear passage to get in without worrying about coral heads. But um, that's something that people who have not been to the Bahamas really exclaim about is the watercolor and the ability to see the difference in the bottom and the depth just by looking. 
after mm-hmm. a lot of practice. You want to practice with your depth sounder because it can be very deceiving. It's so clear. You look down, you're like, oh, we must be in five feet of water and you're in 25 feet of water because you're seeing the starfish and the sand dollars on the bottom really easily. That was that was just plain alarming to us at the beginning of last yeah. season as Chesapeake Bay sailors. I mean, we're used to sailing right. in chocolate milk colored water all the time. <laughs> and coming here, it was we had that exact thing where it's like, oh man, we we must be way off the you know right. the recommended line. It looks so shallow. You can see the starfish. It's twenty eight right. feet deep. It's, right. like, it's crazy. Yeah, I remember when we crossed over. Well, I guess we left from Miami. And crossed over to the bank there and, you know, sailed across the bank. And it's a long sail across the bank there. Mm-hmm. You can't see any land. <laughs> the land is, you know, 10, 12 feet beneath you. That's all you can see is the land right beneath you. The bank, <clears throat> but no other land in sight. I thought that was an amazing place to be. Yeah, and it's, no islands. you know, you, you get here and you're still 60, 70 miles from anywhere. Right, right. From any real islands, yeah. Yeah. And have you guys slept on the banks? That's what we did the first time we crossed over. Is we we got there, and then it was still (laughs) another sixty miles, and we were beat. And we said the sun was starting to set, and so we just dropped the hook on the bank (laughs) in twelve feet of water with no land in sight. But it was nice and calm that night. And. (laughs) Have you done the same, Nika? I'm laughing because the first time we came to the Bahamas was 30 years ago um, on our, our other Bristol Channel cutter that we still own. But we were crossing from Chubkey down to, uh, must have been down to Nassau. And we needed to stop because there are a lot of coral heads on that particular route. And you really can't do the banks during the night because you have to keep your eye out for the, the coral heads. But I remember waking up in the morning and it, there was a little bit of a foggy morning and you couldn't see anything at all. There's it, just like this landscape. And one of the other boats that we were with, the woman got up. She said, oh, it's so beautiful. And Jeremy and I kind of looked at each other we're like, yeah, I guess if you like a moonscape, I just was like, you couldn't see anything at all. So. Uh, yep, and that is beautiful. The sight of nothing. I think we're used to seeing so many things here that when you yeah. see nothing, it's like, wow. Yeah. But yeah, we swam on the banks there. But the, we were, the, t- the two boats were in convoy, Teresa and I, and I was on Elizabeth and Teresa's on Daphne. And so I, we anchored our two boats there together and swam between the two boats. It was lovely. Yeah, like you said, though, it's like a two-part expedition. I think you were saying that, Dave. You cross the, the Gulf Stream, but then you get to the Bahamas and you've got to cross the banks to get to an, a real mm. island. Yeah, and yep. I think by happenstance for us, we haven't dropped the hook on the banks, but it was mainly due to like when we left Lake Worth and we were waiting for slack there. So by the time we got across, it's like, well, we could beat a great sail in the morning if we want to take a nap then. Um, but both times we've come over, we just charged through the night and on to where we're going. And you can be checked in up north, like kind of in the, the fun islands, not not necessarily at West End. Not that there's anything wrong with West End. It's just kind of all by itself over there. Um, so we do the trip in one straight shot across. But like uh, like Nika was saying, there's some parts that I wouldn't want to do at night. So after making the turn past Great Sail, wouldn't really want to be cruising that. At- <laughs> and I think that's one thing, though, that as people are crossing the Bahamas, the, the big thing that everybody talks about is getting across the Gulf Stream. That's the yeah. big monster hurdle that people get very built up for all kinds of good reasons. But then, yes, there's that next piece is unless you're checking in at West End or Bimini, you have to get across the banks to somewhere else right. to check in before you can officially be in the Bahamas. Yeah, I think I've only done that crossing once from Florida to the Bahamas. I've been through the Bahamas numerous times, but coming 
like from the south or the north. I guess we've done it three times. Yeah, yeah. right. Because last year we just went straight to the Caribbean. But we did Largo to, to Bimini. And when we went with the kids, we went West Palm and cleared in at Walker's Key. And then this time we we left from uh, actually Cape Canaveral and we cleared in at Green Turtle. How was your run from the Cape? Because that's something we've thought about doing, Cape down up near uh, Mantinea Shoals, like up there. We wound up paralleling the Florida coast for a while and really b- kind of cutting across right around Port St. Lucie. Okay. But the weather window that we were looking at, we didn't want to miss it. Uh, it was the beginning of December. And if we had not gotten that one, like last week would have been the next weather window. It took a really long time for there to be another weather window. Well, um, I can tell you from experience, that's exactly what happened because yes. <laughs> we waited for three our, weeks for another window to come over. Yeah, we had we had kids flying into Marsh Harbor and mm. and we looked and Jeremy said, well, we're not really far enough south to make that run across the Gulf Stream, but I don't see anything for at least a week. So let's take this and go. So it was, it was fine. It was definitely a motor sailing, but mostly motoring window. We'd prefer to sail, but we got it done. It was flat, calm, easy, easy. And we got it done. And that's, that's a good, like what, 230 miles kind of over. I guess we were going all the way to Green Turtle. That's creeping on 275. Well, we did, we anchored a number of times with the Q flag up until we got into Green Turtle guess we left Canaveral in the morning and we were anchored at Grand the next night. So it was 36 hours to Grand yeah. Key. And then we went from Grand to Moraine, Moraine to Manjack, Manjack to Green Turtle. Great. So you're describing all the little islands on the, the northern section of the Abacos, the very most yes. northern islands in the right. Bahamas. Okay. Yep. Right. So you can just, you were just jumping between those. We wanted good sailing. And, yep. and wanted to tuck in. We were also very aware that there were kind of fronts coming through and we needed to be tucked in for really strong. Actually, we had a section of like it was blowing 20, 25, gusting 30 and higher for a good solid 10 days. Right. Yeah. But you guys had the weather down there and then we had the weather up here in Maine. It was a massive system. It was blowing 40 up here for sure. We had some of that in Green Turtle. So you both just finally successfully got across three week, three weeks apart, you said? Roughly. Yeah, I think just about we left on the 6th of December and you probably left right New Year's just at New Year's, right? We we left on the 26th. Yeah. Um, yeah, so 20 and, 20 days. Yeah. And there was there was like next to no windows. I think there was one that uh Chris Parker described as marginal and uh we right. learned from last year if Chris Parker adds any adjectives to anything <laughs> that it's a no-go for us. <laughs> Not a good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's dive right into the preparations and the planning for, for making those passages. What can you guys share with, with us the tools that you use to plan your weather window and find the weather window? And then what are some of the key considerations uh, in the decision-making process on when to go and when to not go? Um, definitely the long-term models when looking at wind and pressure and and also diversifying the sources you're looking at as well. I use it a, a number of different apps for that, but the main thing is just GFS models, Euro model, and then looking big picture at where the lows are, where they're coming from, stuff coming across from the Gulf, and not just being you know zoomed into the 100-mile radius of where you are to kind of get a bigger picture of what's going on weather-wise. We'll subscribe to the 
Chris Parker daily emails. Um, we don't do any custom forecasts or anything, but just get the synopsis um, from them. And that's just another source of data to look at and to kind of calculate from. And then, so what exactly are you looking for when you look at these tools? What's the ideal conditions or the conditions you're looking for? Absolutely no northern component to the wind, because that's what's going to get your your stream crossing really, really chopped up. And although it's short in those adverse conditions, it's going to beat your boat up, it's going to beat your crew up. Um, and yeah, ig- ignoring kind of the known way to cross for the last couple hundred years it can get you into trouble. Basically, uh, south for a day ahead of when we went, and then it actually swung northwest when we crossed, but it swung northwest that morning. And it didn't really have enough time to chop things up, but it did r- make the sea state pretty annoying. But I can do annoying for eight, nine hours, but it wasn't big. Nothing was insurmountable for our boat anyways. And what was the wind speed at that point? It was real light when we got up in the morning, but it did end up picking up probably to about 16 to 18 sustained. But the time hadn't elapsed enough for it to really chop things up. The window we chose to cross on was a a marginal one. It was a very short one. Um, Things were going to turn north for another week after that. And we said we didn't want to wait. So we had taken a look at the weather window that we thought was going to materialize, mainly just from our weather apps. I mean, for us, that's windy in an app named LuckGrib is one I like for the Apple users out there. It was going to turn south after Christmas. And it did, but it turned south at almost 30 knots for 12 hours or something. But that got the sea state organized, that laid down and started to clock around to west and then northwest. And we knew we could get across in that short time before it kicked back around to the north. So we had a few things line up that 80 degrees, high pressure, no wind, and Lake Atlantic just motored right across, no problem at all. Good. Were there other boats that that took that window that you know of? Oh, on the AIS coming out of uh, Lake Worth Inlet. I saw that. That was crazy. (laughs) Yeah, there was probably 200 boats crossing or something wild like that. Right, because everyone had been waiting for three weeks, right? Yeah, and I mean, we had friends who got so bored of sitting in Lake Worth that they just went down to Miami to try and get a little more mileage um, just to pop over, check in, and get down to the berries and get further south a little faster. Lake Worth was just absolutely packed because no one had anywhere to go. And what about you, Nika? How was your uh, your recent crossing, and what was the what was the plan for that and your weather window? So the uh, the weather window, which was the beginning of December, uh, and what do we we look at? We look at Chris Parker and the long term stuff. Like Dave, we subscribe to the daily emails. We also listen on the sideband, right. and it's kind of interesting even looking at some of the differences in listening to the sideband and what they'll send out um, on the email, because they don't always line up completely, depending on who is doing the weather forecast. If Chris is doing the sideband, you get a whole lot of background, a whole lot more background than you get in the emails. One guy is very quick and precise. It's almost not precise, but he's, uh, he's precise in his own way. It's like he's reading, almost reading from his own little script, which might not jibe with what comes out on the emails. We look at Windy. Jeremy will often run uh, weather routing on Fast Seas, which is his weather app. And we'll also look at the national weather forecast. He'll, he spends, you know, usually a good three or four hours every morning looking at weather and, and pulling a whole d- bunch of different 
sources together because you look at the different models, but you also try to understand where different people are getting their ideas from in terms of what they're forecasting. So like Dave, we look for no north in the forecast. So we were starting to look at, at getting across the stream, but we didn't think we were going to be able to do it for a few days because we were in Canaveral. And then we were looking and realized that as far as we could see for at least another week, there was nothing except north and not just north, but strong northerly sector winds. It wasn't five knots out of the north because it was five knots out of the north. Not ideal, but it's not going to bring up the sea state. The, the Gulf Stream is a north flowing current. And if you have north wind coming against it, you're going to have the wind versus current effect, which can cause some pretty good chop and seas in the Gulf Stream. Um, if you've got light northwesterlies, that's not a terrible time to cross. But by light, I mean five or six or seven knots where you're motor sailing across. We don't look for things that are over 10 knots out of the north sector at all. And we'd much prefer to have nothing north sector at all. So we were looking and there was an extended period right at the beginning of December. And by extended, I mean like three or four days where the wind was southeast and then it was south and then it was southwest and then it was west. And then it was coming around to the northwest before it was going to start to pick up and blow harder. And we realized that that was really kind of our best opportunity to get across the stream for a while. And so we went out the Canaveral Inlet and paralleled the coast coming down to Port St. Lucie before we crossed the stream. And it was fine. It was a great Gulf Stream crossing. Um, mm. It was motor sailing. We always had a sail up, but we had to have the motor on the whole way to get across. Because it was uh, light. Because we wanted to make sure we were all the way across before the wind turned north and picked up. Great. Now explain for us the, uh, the rationale for going south along the coast. Part of that is that we didn't want to enter the Bahamas banks too far north. There are a couple of places where if you look at a chart of the Bahamas and the Little Bahama Bank, which is the northern Bahama Bank area, that extended area of shallower water, there are a couple of known places where you want to enter the banks which have less coral heads on them. And so that's why we wanted to parallel the coast. And the other thing is that the Gulf Stream is closer to shore the further south you go in Florida. Like Lake Worth, it's like five to 10 miles offshore, you hit the Gulf Stream. And when you're up around Canaveral, you're looking at 30 or 40 miles. Um, but yeah. how far it is to get into the Gulf Stream, meaning you need longer hours of daylight or time to get across before the, the weather would shift on us. So... Right, you need that window, that weather window, to ex be extended yeah. longer. Right, as opposed you know, to it's forty miles offshore, and you're doing right. five knots. That's eight hours just to get to the right. Gulf Stream. How many miles did you sail south, and to what, approximately what point on land? We went just south of Vero Beach, so we were actually talking to friends in Vero on the VHF. We were that close okay. to shore, so right about Port St. Lucie, I think, is where the wind started to clock around. And we were having to tack in or move closer into land. So we said, nope, time to turn and go. Time to swap so over. That's what we did. Yeah. So you had a good window, though, it seemed like. You had two or three days there? Yeah, we did. When we went across, we had southwest uh, and then becoming west as we went. It was it was good. It would have been nicer to have more wind to be able to sail. But right. um, we'll, we'll take an easy, calm Gulfstream crossing that involves motoring rather than one that is all sailing that is bashing. Misery is I optional. Will, That's a good mantra. I will yeah. second that as well. I'd, I'd yeah. rather just punch right across. Yeah. And when you're coming from further south, going for the little Bahama banks and shooting north, mm -hmm. then you've got the Gulf Stream with you. Our average across the stream, even though it's at a slight angle, I think we were doing around eight knots most of the time, which in our little nice. 
already nice. put bowed, it's worth flying. Nice. When you're targeting those shorter windows, I think that route south to north can really help you hit the nail on the head. If you just need to right. get by in one daytime chunk or one overnight, and you just need to get across. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, I have to share a moment from our first crossing when we were in convoy. And um, she was aboard Daphne, and um, I was on the Bristol Channel Cutter Elizabeth. And of course, I was a little ahead of her because it's a faster boat. Um, <laughs> I was often kind of reefed down and waiting for her when we were sailing in convoy like that. But I was ahead of her, and it was a beautiful, I think it was 10 or 12, 15 knots, something like that. It was kind of like the ideal sail and nice, clear skies. We found a, a beautiful weather window that year. I, it was 2009. It was years years ago, but um, we found a, a perfect window. As we were crossing, I uh, I looked back and I saw Daphne in the distance, and then directly behind her, I saw a massive water spout. <gasps> yep. And as they do, they come and go, and thank God, it kind of just went off in a different direction and disappeared. But um, it was super shocking, super surprising, and I'm wondering if you guys have any shocking surprises that happened out there on your crossings like that thank god no i mean no. i've seen water spouts yeah. but not in the gulf stream and our first year coming over we were most of the way through after a very leisurely motor sail just like real champagne sailing kind of deal getting yeah. over but then the seas kicked up a lot right next to the bank i don't know mm -hmm. if it was just a medi or something where we came through the waypoint we like is called white sand ridge or mm -hmm. if you use the explorer chart books it's little bahama banks waypoint mm -hmm. and yeah the last half hour before we hopped up on the bank it just got real like choppy and gross um mm -hmm. so it could be water coming up and welling up and we had a yeah. kind of a similar thing when we came across this time i just attributed it to the crappy weather i mean it wasn't a great day when we came over but as far as surprises not really but it's hard to be surprised by something when you sit there and analyze it for hours every day for a couple weeks <laughs> when you're waiting for these windows to come so yeah true but those water spots can pop up at any point i've also experienced that little choppiness and, and messy seas right by the banks there too we actually experienced that not coming to the Bahamas, but last winter we sailed from Beaufort, North Carolina down to the BVI and the Gulf Stream crossing way up north in North Carolina. The Gulf Stream crossing was fine. The worst weather in terms of waves that we had was after we were through the Gulf Stream on the other on the south side of it, which was wild. Totally. Yeah, mm. totally. Yeah. I, we yeah. sailed from from Norfolk basically out to Bermuda. <laughs> crossing the stream was fine. Everything after that was a complete mess. Yeah. Some of the worst conditions yeah. I've had to endure for four days. So I was going to ask you about the currents. You had mentioned you had some grips for the currents. Tell me more about those. That seems like a great tool to have. Um, RTFOS, I think. So, uh, yeah, RTOFS. So real time, I think that's a NOAA <laughs> data product. Um, but I will load that up. And again, I use LuckGrib for almost everything. It's kind of a very stripped down, not subscription-based, great little piece of software written by a sailor because he didn't like what he had available to him. He's very good about getting every model that's available and he will load it onto his wow. servers. But yeah, that the current one, I will load alongside with whatever weather model I'm using for routing because it will also take the that into consideration the rtofs is the ocean one and then ofs is the inland bay so that you can get ofs for like the chesapeake bay and a gulf of mexico and things like that and that makes some some of those decisions a little bit easier to deal with when you're trying to do a big long run on chesapeake or delaware bay, to figure out bay especially <laughs> yeah 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 we, um, 
where is the Gulf Stream? Is because it's meandering a little bit, right? <laughs> it does, and yeah, and it's uh, especially handy day of to say like, okay, we're almost there, and kind of confirm like, well, now we're really scooting. So one thing we didn't really talk about the passage planning, but there's also when you cross, especially if you're shooting from south over to west end or anything like that. You got to calculate your set that you're going to get from the Gulf Stream, which in our little slow short water line boat, um, we're good for about 18 miles north of uh, a rum line course right across. So if you the average for an entire crossing of the Gulf Stream uh, would be about two knots uh, northbound while you're crossing. So you're being set two knots for every hour going across. We assume that eight, nine hours. So we'll call that 16 to 18 miles north. Um, Some people do, they call it the S curve when crossing, where you head out a little bit south until you start getting slow and then come back. For us doing the the northern route into the Abacos and coming across the little Bahama banks, I turn with it and just send it. But you need to kind of be a little wise at your first waypoints you pick and you can't just set it and forget it. Because if you do that, you get across the Gulf Stream and be like, oh, great. Now I need to go another 20 miles north to the next uh, point to get into the banks because I didn't I didn't shoot this right. So it's kind of a constant check-in. And when are we getting into it? How fast is it? Is this course fast? And what, are there any tools you use to determine when you're in the Gulf Stream and when you're out of it? For us, the easy thing, speed over ground. We don't clean our paddle wheel very often, but uh, if you did have actual hole speed, yeah. Uh, through your instruments, that'd be a good way to kind of tell what's going on. Um, but for me, it's always just, I'm setting a course that I know works because we did it last year and it was fine. Uh, looking at our speed over ground versus our position on that uh, current forecast, the RTOFS file. Right. And are you using your, your compass heading versus your, your course over ground? We're heading on a course of 090, but we're actually making 060. Yeah, some of that you can cheat a little bit and take a look at some of the other boats on AIS. And if they're, they're crab walking sideways versus uh-huh. you know, the actual vector that their AIS unit's reporting, then you know, okay, well, they're in the stream. So I know I must be coming up on it. Um, right. But yeah, it's um, mainly looking at your true heading versus where you're trying to go. And it's, it becomes especially apparent over time. Um, obviously, might be a little more less of an issue in a fast boat, but. We're, we're assuming five knots most of the time in, in our boat. Do you have any tools you use to know when you're in the Gulf Stream and out of the Gulf Stream? Really, we're looking at speed. What speed are we making uh, over the ground? And particularly when we were northbound from the Caribbean last spring, that's really much more fun when you're going in the Gulf Stream because you want to take that ride. Yes, that's much more right. fun than trying to get across and, and having your course um, kind of messed up by the the north sweep of the gulf stream uh we're not looking at at current grib files or anything like that that would be a um pretty neat tool to have but pretty much it's just speed and and sort of the vector what we're making as opposed to what we're steering yeah. so that's that's the one that makes the most sense to me I, the speed thing i mean maybe you can explain it for people we're going perpendicular to the current to get to the bahamas right mm-hmm. so how how does that actually affect your speed? It's not slowing you down and it's not speeding you up because it's perpendicular to your vessel heading. So what are you seeing actually for the change in speed? Well, it's, a lot of that's a function of the course you want, right? <laughs> so a traditional uh, West Palm to West End transit 
That's basically like 90 true right out of the inlet. With the set, you're never going to hit it. So then you're trying to correct a little bit south, right? And as you start turning south, you're going to see that speed over ground just dump to nothing. So when we're going up closer to like, I don't know, 78 to 85 true is kind of our route that we like to make our waypoint. Um, We'll get into the stream and my, you know, normal kind of cruise it would be around like five, eight, somewhere around there. And even if you're going perpendicular, I think you're going to see an effect of kind of like your speed over ground that you'd know for your boat. And then a few degrees on the autopilot, one way or the other, you're talking half knot of speed difference. Mm-hmm. It's right. substantial. And you'll you'll either know something's wrong or you'll be loving the pace you're making. Great. Yeah, it, it's more velocity made good. So if you're yeah. looking at the yeah. actual speed that you're making towards your destination, as opposed to boat speed by itself. If you are being swept north by the Gulf Stream, your velocity made good in terms of how fast you're actually making it to the destination you're going, your speed will drop. Because even if you're not angling into the stream, but you're when you're trying to go perpendicular, you're being swept sideways, so you're not making the same course. You're not making the speed towards your destination that you would be if there weren't the current there. Excellent explanation. Thank you. <laughs> All right, cool. So we've talked about uh, your weather riding. Tell me about fast seas while we're on it, because um, you said you're using that to do what? So Fassies is a, uh, I love that Dave mentioned that um, he's using the, whatever that, that luck, one is that was rib. developed by a by a sailor because he couldn't he didn't have the tools that he needed otherwise. Well, Jeremy developed Fast Seas, which is a weather routing program, a weather routing service. It's all automated. He built software to help with route planning and um, and departure planning. So you get yourself a an account on Fast Seas. You can run five free routes before it's a pay, but it's 10 bucks a month or 60 bucks a year for a subscription. Right now, the only forecast model that he's got available is the GFS because until extraordinarily recently, the euro was prohibitively expensive. But apparently they may have just changed their terms of service. When Jeremy gets some time, hopefully this summer, he's going to look into to adding that to um, to FASTSEAS. It's, again, not the only tool that we use because the more resources you have, the better. But um, right. he That's... wanted to make something that was budget-friendly because there are other um, maybe more robust options out there, but the price point is beyond our sailing budget. And it's it's uh, it's running out forecasts and boat speed, right? Isn't it do that whole It'll thing? It'll create a, a simple polar for you just by putting in your boat data. If you have a specific polar for your own boat, you can put it in oh. there. Um, but you can also say, hey, I don't want to beat with winds above X or... Um, I prefer reaching with winds at this speed. Um, And if I'm going to motor, I'm going to motor when the speed drops below X. And then you can assume that the speed when I'm motoring is this. So Mm -hmm. it takes a whole lot of those things into account. Right. right. Yeah, it's really good for route planning. Nice. Um, Hey, let's talk about when you actually get to the Bahamas. What are, what are you guys doing? I, we can't talk about the Palmas without the pigs, right? But have you been to the pigs? Yeah, they're, cool. Dude, they're mean. We're getting a they are so big mean. thumbs down on the pigs. Never, yeah. ever do I need to see the pigs again. They are, yeah, I, yeah they're, they're bigger than your dinghy. Their hooves mm-hmm. are sharp. So yep. if you've got an inflatable, you better watch out because they could actually puncture it. Yeah. And they'll bite you. Yeah, people uh-huh. say, oh, it's a pig beach. I'm like, good. That means that that's a place I'm not going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's usually a pretty healthy congregation of charter boats and things like that. And that's yeah. not yeah. normally yeah. where we hang out. 
No, no, right? no. That's the, the, the antithesis of what most of us are seeking. Yeah. Um, we had a great time. I forget a, fur, a little further up that chain there, and we took the uh, the Portland Pudgy on a wonderful row through the mangroves and out to the other side where it was more exposed. I mean, through. Shroud Key and the Exumas—that's definitely one. Yeah, that sounds about right. You can row through there through the mangroves. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was just glorious, but and, and no one was in there. It was quite nice. <laughs> nope. Nice. Yep. So you've you've have you been able to find some not crowded places in the Bahamas? Absolutely. We're, we're in one right now. So the first time we were cruising was before the internet. Um, and actually, we met Monty and Sarah Lewis before they had even put out the Explorer charts. But then when we came with the kids, the Explorer charts were out and the internet was a thing. But what we noticed, and I think that what we've noticed so far is still true, people go to these spots that are marked on the Explorer charts. And in fact, they'll put their anchor right where the anchor symbol is on the Explorer charts. Even if you are already there, (laughs) they want to come and they want to put their anchor right on where the anchor is for the Explorer charts. But you can go places, you can anchor places where there's not an anchor symbol. Believe it or not, two days ago, we were sailing from from Egg Island and we were going to hopefully make it to Governor's Harbor. There was not enough wind. We were just sailing and we ghosted and we went just past Hatchet Bay. And we anchored off of Allistown. Well, there's not an anchor symbol on any chart anywhere that says you can anchor right off of Allistown. Well, we used Google Maps and the Google satellite image, and we could tell there was a patch of sand just a little bit further down the beach. And we went and we anchored there, and it was great. There's nothing that says you can't anchor places where there's not an anchor symbol. Just because somebody hasn't anchored there before doesn't mean you can't anchor there. People go to the Bahamas and they go to the same places. They all Uh want to be in the same place. And go even two or three miles away from where that place is and you can be completely by yourself. We've been places where you can see all the mastheads, maybe on the other side of the island or the next bay over, but nobody's in the one where you are because that's not where people talk about going. Yeah, for us, some of that exploration was driven by, uh, I'm a complete wuss about a rolly anchorage. I like it nice and calm at night. So we'd just go chase like wherever we could go hide. And, you know, yeah. as long as there's depth there and some sand there. Uh, yep. And that led us to some uh, pretty obscure places that we just returned to time and time again. Now, a little bit yeah. of dinghy exploring and swimming around, and then you find the little honey holes for fishing and doing anything right. else, then it's easy to go back to those places. But yeah, I mean, some of that's weather driven and this time of year, there's a lot of moving around. So if it doesn't have a dock bar and it's not on the Explorer charts or active captain, you're pretty much going to be by yourself. No one's coming there. Right. Right. Except though, I will say then you have to look out because sometimes you anchor someplace and somebody else decides, Oh, that must be the right place to anchor. So I'm going to come and anchor right on top of you. So beware of that right next to you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, similar Definitely things. more common later, later in the season when it gets packed. Up I mean, we're at Rock Sound right now, and it's a huge, huge, huge anchorage and bay. And we came in and like Dave, we like to be where there's not roll and we look at what the expected wind is and when it's going to pipe up and what have you. And we tucked ourselves up pretty nicely. There's one other boat, quite a few yards away, you know, a long way away from us, but there were five or six boats that were anchored down by town. They're rocking and pitching as we're sailing by them, getting to the place where we're going. It's like, just go the extra mile to go up and get yourself out of it. But some people look and they say, oh, I need to be by town, not realizing that maybe they could come to town later or the next day. One thing I noticed when we were in the Bahamas is is that some of the to-go island hopping 
isn't often a hop. It's more of a long run. Um, and there's actual passages between some of the islands, some very exposed sections there where the ocean swells can come right through. And you've got to actually look for a weather window to get across from island to island. Have you experienced that? Um, getting from kind of the north part of the Abacos down to the south part of the Abacos, um, it's something you need to watch. And you need to watch for a long term, especially if you've got like friends meeting you or something like that. Because if it swings to the northeast, um, the whale will then uh, rage, as they call it up here. And you'll have breaking seas all the way across it. Um, so that's a chunk where you have to come off the bank, go around an island, and then come back onto the bank. And if the conditions aren't right, the whale can close on you. Like you're just, you're up north now. And you can go back to Green Turtle and hang out. And then as you work your way south, you need to plan for a 30 or 40 mile day sometimes. And that's usually involves quite a bit more of looking at weather and sea state and things like that. I mean, I think for us, when we were spending all our time in the Abacos before we, we and we just crossed from Abaco to Eleuthera uh, two days ago, that's about a 50 mile passage, open ocean, um, from the southern tip, I guess we weren't all the way at the southern tip of Abaco, but we were south of Little Harbor. We left from Cherokee Sound and crossed to Egg Island. And that's about a 50-mile day, which mm-hmm. um, in a small boat uh, with with not very many hours of sunlight during this time of year means you got to leave really promptly and you might be coming in kind of at the tail end of things. We actually had a great passage, uh, fantastic wind, averaged over six and a half knots, which was great. But we also had staged ourselves down to Cherokee because getting out of Cherokee does not involve going out of a cut. And what Dave was talking about with the, with the, the whale is there are cuts. There are places where there are kind of breaks in the islands that take you from open ocean to bank side. And when you're talking about the volume of water that goes from open ocean and a deep water passage to something that's shallower, the amount of water that pours through can be impressive. And if you have wind versus current or any kind of a swell, you can get breaks across those cuts. And that happens all the way down in the Exumas. That happens in the Abacos. Um, Eleuther isn't kind of set up as much that way. You're not, you don't really have those cuts that you're going through to get from bank to open ocean. But if you are looking to get around and through one of those cuts, you definitely need to take weather into consideration as well as timing of the tide. Um, and the timing of the tide can be because you need certain depth, but it also can be that you want to make sure that you're not, if you've got a strong easterly wind and the water is going, you don't want to have water that is rushing out from the bank to go open ocean. And I'm, I'm thinking about the Abacos, like the, the Sea of Abaco and its bank there, the shallower water, if you've got all that huge rush of water going out to the open ocean and you've got it going against the wind, it can be a impossible thing. And so the tough part that we found in the Exumas is that sometimes you're leaving a cut with the right wind and tide. And then by the time you get to the next cut, it's not the right wind and tide. It's a little bit of a balancing act and trying to figure out what you're going to do with that. But, um, but yes, we had our 50 mile passage and then it was another 50 miles to go from Egg Island over to Rock Sound. And we wanted to be in Rock Sound because there's westerly wind coming. The next couple of days is going to be this kind of swirly, 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 Swirl. lots of different frontal stuff coming through. And we wanted to have a good place to tuck in. And Rock Sound is great. You, you just reminded me of a really great point is that the currents coming through the cuts and off the banks and that sort of thing, um, you know, they're nearly as, as important 
as the Gulfstream crossing is. And now you're still talking those same mileages that you have to make 50 miles, yeah. which is about the same crossing from Florida. And so it's, you know, it's not just the crossing to get to the Bahamas. You're still dealing with those same issues in the Bahamas themselves. And I think that's really uh, an important point to bring up here. Well, I know we were talking about current cut, um, which is a, a little cut um, to get you through into the bite of Eleuthera. And it says it is, I, it can't be more tiny. than 30 feet wide. It's tiny. Yeah. It's this teeny little cut. And we, people say, look, you can only go through at slack tide. Well, we came through with a flood because the flood is going from west to east. And Jeremy was laughing in the cockpit, like speed going three knots, four knots, 4.7, 5.1, 6.0, 7.5 knots as we're going through this tiny little cut. But imagine trying to go against that. That would not work. So no. You have to time it right. Yeah, yeah, totally. It sounds like sailing in Maine. I our, think so. With our, <laughs> our 12 foot tides every day. There's only three foot tide down in Bahamas, I recall, right? Two to three? Right? Yeah. yeah. Two to three. Yep. Yeah. But you've got a lot of water moving over shallow spots, and mm -hmm. that makes a big difference. I would say we're definitely a lot more dialed into weather and conditions than we were used to previously, like sailing uh, up in the bay and even on the trip down, I mean, you don't really deal with a ton of current until you get a little bit further south on the, uh, the ICW rundown. Um, where once we're down here, especially this time of year, it's checking in the morning, checking in the evening, because it's just always the wind swinging on you. What you thought was a good anchorage when you left in the morning, it's like, ugh, this isn't great. So let's pivot and let's go somewhere else. While the sailing conditions are usually good, it's not always like just kind of set it and forget it. You got to be on, on your game on that front. Well, and I think the other thing too is we like to often tuck in as close as we can to shore and the number of times that we're checking tide level to say, all right, how much how much extra do we need to allow for when we anchor so that we don't go bump in the night? We want to make sure that we're not coming in and anchoring with just enough to spare at high tide and then we're gonna lose three feet. That's we good. have had a couple of nights, not this not this term, but we've had we've had a couple nights in the past where oops, they're bump oh, I guess we we didn't quite do that right, and we found ourselves aground for a little bit of the tide. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> it's nice to have a full keel boat, isn't it? It is nice yeah, to have a full keel boat. <laughs> lots of room for a little, yeah. little error there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel always felt comfortable going hard aground in in Elizabeth. <laughs> as long as yeah. it's sand, you don't yes. want to do that on rock or coral. No, no, no. Not, you you not, learn not you learn Maine, your mistakes but... in the Bahamas. Yeah, yeah. That's a great place to do it. Yeah. We don't, we don't do that in Maine, but I, uh, no. we were trying to go out some cut. I can't remember the cuts. It was so long ago, but boy, oh boy, did we time it wrong and just went, it was, tide was ebbing and we didn't quite make it in time. And I just sat there the entire low tide and I cleaned the bottom and it was great. I've seen pictures. Yeah. That was, that was a good time, but the bottom was clean <laughs> and, and maybe yeah. that was my intention. Though. I did it on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> But excellent. Well, I, I've really appreciated you guys making it today and getting this together. It's been a fun discussion. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Morning Muster. If you're hungry for more, stop by our website at morsealpha.com. Click on the podcast section and you'll find all our previous episodes right there. And while you're cruising our website, don't forget to check out our sail training expeditions. We've got another educational season ahead, so make sure to grab your bunk before they're gone. Again, that's morsealpha.com. M-O-R-S-E-A-L-P-H-A dot com. You can also catch us on Instagram. 
where we're known as Morse Alpha Expeditions. Until our next rendezvous, remember, sail with purpose and always stay found. Thank you.